these my waves get lost in the ocean. Seven billion swimmers, man, I'm going through the motions. Hi, this is Nancy Herald, and welcome to my show, High Road to Humanity. In every episode, I tell you powerful true stories filled with great wisdom that you can use in your own life as you strive for a higher road to travel. My featured guests will have their own unique stories to tell that enlighten your mind and your soul. So kick back, relax, and learn the secret to success when you take the high road. Hey, it's Nancy Yerell, and welcome to my show. We've got a great show for you today, and I'm so excited. I just finished her book. We are going to be speaking with Barbara Jaffe, and she has a doctorate in education, and she's written this really awesome book, you guys. It's called When Will I Be Good Enough? And even my husband went, wow, I need to read that, because I think we've all had parts of times in our lives where we're like, wow, am I not good enough? And you start to, to think about different things. And she just covers so many cool things in this book. But I want y'all to sit back and relax. And I'm going to read a little bit from Barbara's book today. So sit back and relax. And here we go. It's called The Beginning. She says, I am the replacement child, the child born after the tragic death of my brother, who I never knew. The almost two-year-old cherub whose giggling, dimpled, chubby face peers at me from multiple locations in antique frames strategically arranged throughout my childhood home. Jeffrey, the forever perfect golden-haired little boy who never had the opportunity to grow up and grow old. Jeffrey, whose place I suddenly took as second child, child number two. He was a family member about whom I wasn't supposed to talk or ask questions. Yet through my mother's whispers and unspoken words, I implicitly knew I had to quite impossibly measure up to an unlived life. If Jeffrey had lived, you wouldn't have been born, my mother would often say throughout the years. Thus, even from, and that must have been hard for you, Barbara, but thus even from an early age, I sent that I must have done something horrific to cause my brother's demise. Such confusion solidified my mark as the little girl growing into young adulthood, the little girl who could and would do anything for the love of a mother, whose heart was shattered into sharp pieces. I felt it was my duty and my life's mission to pick up those jagged shards, one by one, and put them back together in the form of my mother's broken heart. It took almost my entire life for me to realize that nothing I did could actually fix what was broken, nor could I create my rightful place in a family whose blueprint had already been designed. I was and always would be second best, second string, always on the bench waiting to be called, cheering from the bleachers, awaiting in some way my turn to be first, a turn that would never come. Wow, this is a wonderful book, and um, let me give you a little information about Barbara Jaffe. Um, she's here with us today, and Barbara uh, has a doctorate in education, and she's an award-winning English professor at El Camino College, California. She's a she is a fellow in UCLA's Department of Education. She offers countless workshops to students to help them find their writers' voices through nonfiction, her college has honored her by naming her Outstanding Woman of the Year and Distinguished Teacher of the Year. Wow. Her wish for this book is twofold. First, to help other replacement children understand and accept their often challenging journeys as she reveals her own. And second, to offer a cautionary tale to parents who have perhaps unwittingly set the stage in their own families for a child who, who serves as a replacement for another or is viewed as less by comparison. 
Barbara also shares her inner joy to wholeness so that readers might be able to relate to their own challenges and growth, whether they are replacement children or just feel less than at times. Barbara, welcome to High Road to Humanity. Thank you so much, Nancy, and thank you for reading parts of my book. Your voice is beautiful. It sounds so great. <laughs> well, I'm, I'll tell you what, your book really touched me. Um, there's a lot of things in it that really hit home with me. <clears throat> Excuse me. Would you mind telling us your story and what happened to you, please? Sure. Um, so I was born after Jeffrey died. He was almost two when he was struck with meningitis, and, when six, and within six weeks, he died. I have an older brother, so we're almost seven years older, um, about six and a half. So I was conceived just a few months after Jeffrey died. Um, the doctor visited my hysterical mother, obviously. Um, losing a child is the worst possible situation. And in those days, there wasn't any, at least in my family of origin, but in general, there weren't a lot of groups, a lot of grieving um, where people could go and parents could go. So the doctor paid a visit to um, our home and literally slapped my mother across the face, told her to stop crying, to get it together, and to have another baby. So and she never went to any kind of formal um, counseling for the death of your brother, is what you're no, saying? not at all. In fact, she would, once in a while, she would say, that was my therapy, that slap across the face. Wow. What right. year was it? Can I ask? I hate to age us, but what year was it yeah, when this happened? Was, he died in 1952. He was born in 1950. Okay. Um, I'm sorry, 1953 he died. I was born in 1954. Okay. But and things the, have changed a lot since then, you know? Absolutely. And, that, and, yeah. and thank goodness that um, there is medicine now for meningitis. You know, there's preventive medicine in terms of an inoculation and there's medication. But in those days... Um, it, it left him as a vegetable, so um, he ended up dying. Well, and it left her broken. Your mom, it left broken, her broken. And she was very depressed. It, exactly. Um, she was very depressed. She was happy and wonderful. It was joyful. But she had these very dark periods. And my brother, um, my older brother, has a very different view of his childhood than I did. How does he see it? I mean, he knows that um, our mom was depressed, but being a lot older and being a boy, I think he got um, a lot more freedom. And he was in many ways, you know, the, the child that didn't have to compete with anybody because he was the first child and a, a male. And I think my mom generally appreciated males more. So when you were a little girl, you felt the energy from your mother that you weren't good enough is what you're basically saying. Did you feel that, that vibe? I, I felt that things were a little bit harder for me, although anybody who knew me from the outside looking in would not even know that. Um, and I could not even articulate any of this probably until I'd say 10, 12 years ago. I never really viewed myself as a replacement child. I just knew that no matter what I did, it wasn't quite good enough. But I, I couldn't quite picture why in terms of in, until my writing took me into this journey inward and I was able to put all the pieces together. So I never had a chip on my shoulder or felt like a victim, but I always wondered why it seemed so much harder for me. Well, and it changed you. I love what you say in the book. You say, careful the little things you say, you quote, 
careful the little things you say children will listen and that's from into the woods and that's true because she must have said things to you that stuck with you that changed you she did and again as parents we all do the best we can with the tools we have so i i love her dearly um i have wonderful memories of her so i've come to terms with the fact that she did the best she could under the circumstances and i have no doubt she loved me fiercely but um it was problematic and i she wasn't ready to have me and um she never really recovered so some of the things she said she would often say for my own good but of course in retrospect it was not really for my own good it was for her own good right right well i understand and i think it's wonderful by the way that you know a lot of people are angry with their parents or they blame their parents but you know i love that you say that you took responsibility and said okay what's going on here how can i fix some of these issues that you were um stricken with almost like as a child you talk about you had an eating disorder and was that was pretty much caused by the uh disconnect between you and your mother is that what happened or yeah, is I that think that I, yeah you're right. The dynamics very early on, I found that my mother was very controlling. And, you know, in terms of the eating disorders, when you think about it, um, one way in which to control our own lives is what goes into our body. And mm -hmm. so that, of course, is food. So I was chubby and she was the first to point out to me that I was chubby, but, you know, I was 10 or 11. So um, at that point, I. Um, I took it to heart, and as I got a little bit older, 12, 13, I lost a lot of weight um, to the point that I became anorexic at a time when anorexia wasn't really known about as much or talked about, um, and certainly it was just one of those things where you just have to eat. So then our dynamic be made it become where she uh, was forcing me to eat all the time, and that made me eat less. So it was something you could control, and that's why a lot of people do that. Right. Exactly. You know, and I like in your book how you you escaped to college. It's what I'm going to fast forward a little bit. So you decided, OK, I'm going to go away to college to kind of get away from your mother and start your life over. Is that about right? Yes, I knew that I wanted to go away, but again, I didn't articulate it by saying I wanted to uh, leave my mother. In fact, I was crying hysterically that I was leaving her. So it was almost like a spiritual feeling that I felt there was something propelling me to move, which of course was so healthy because I was the only one in my family who went to college and I was the only one who ever moved away. You know, I'm fourth wow. generation San Franciscan. Everybody lived very close to each other. Um, but there was something within me that forced me to go away, which was really healthy. So it's your intuitive. It was your, it's that gut feeling that told you, hey, it's time for me to make a move. And that's when you broke away. And that's when things started to change for you, huh? Yes, and that's when I explored life um, and all the various possibilities, not just of academics, but social and, you know, introspection and psychology and um, a very different life. And my right. mother often said she didn't forgive herself for allowing me to move away because I never came back. That's crazy. You know, another thing you say in the book that really just is uh, floors me is that she said, when you come back from college, make sure you graduate and make sure you're engaged. I mean, that was, wow, what kind of pressure is that? So make sure you get your degree and find a husband that's suitable for you at the same time. <laughs> I'm like, she wow. Said, she said, make sure you get your, um, your MRS degree. 
Mrs. Oh, yeah. Mrs. Degree. She okay. told me to study in the law library or the medical library. Um, so I could meet a lawyer or a doctor, never once thinking that I could maybe be a lawyer or a doctor. On your own. There you go. And here you are, a doctor. I love it. I love it. All right. We're going to be back here, you guys, in a little bit. The book is called, we're here today, we're talking to Barbara Jaffe, and the book is called When Will I Be Good Enough? And what a great book. It's called A Replacement Child's Journey to Healing. And what a fantastic book. If you know somebody who's gone through this, um, please share the show or share this book because it's fabulous. More stories to tell on High Road to Humanity. Check out Nancy's website, nancyyearout.com, to book your first 30-minute coaching session for free to get you on your high road. a dentist invented the first electric chair? Just thinking about going to the dentist makes me feel like I'm headed for death row. What's a word for the fear of a dentist? Odontophobia. Bruxomania is another word for the compulsive grinding of one's teeth. Early toothbrushes were twigs with frayed ends. Toothpaste in a tube was made available to the public in 1892 and was called Dr. Scheffel's Cream Dentifrice. Now Americans buy 14 million gallons of toothpaste every year. In Mexico, the tooth fairy is called the tooth mouse. Half of all Americans say that a smile is the first thing they notice about a person. It's easy to spot a person with a fake smile, otherwise known as an exodesiast. I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words-you-never-heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. We want to thank you so much for listening to High Road to Humanity. This is where Nancy and her guests tell stories that will guide you and enlighten your mind and soul. Now, welcome back to the High Road. Welcome back, and this is your host, Nancy Yearout, and we're here today with Barbara Jaffe, and she's telling us her story, and her book is called When Will I Be Good Enough? And Barbara, where can people get your book, and do you have a website that you could share with us, please? Yes, I have a website, and let me go ahead and spell it. It's Barbara Ann Jaffe, B-A-R-B-A-R-A-A-N-N-J-A-F-F-E.com. And there you'll learn more about my my journey, um, some videos, other interviews, as well as where to get the book. You can get it through Amazon, um, amazon amazon.com. Okay, fantastic. You know, we were talking um, before the break um, that you were supposed to come home and be engaged with a ring on your finger and graduate. And you did that, didn't you? I did. I was a little girl. I really did. And how... (laughs) fortunate that 42 years later, we're still married. So I chose the right person. Um, But again, um, I think that I didn't come into my own until after I was married. I was I had just turned 22. I got married a week after graduation. I was a little girl. My husband allowed to grow up. And that's wonderful. And you say in the book, and I want to mention this because it's really interesting because it puts it into perspective. Instead of your mom going to your graduation where, you know, my goodness, she was planning your wedding. She yeah, didn't she, attend. No, absolutely. She, she was too busy and it was just too close to the wedding. That's so crazy. And you know, at the time, you probably didn't think anything of it. Well, that's what I was going to say. I didn't. I really didn't. Just she found my wedding dress and I said, okay, great. I was, like I said, very compliant. And, um, you know, I 
question why, but I guess that was a survival uh, mechanism in my life. So when you got married and then you started to have your own children and you say your husband really helped because it sounds like he's just a wonderful man and he's a great partner to you and he encouraged you. He encouraged me because I think he realized that he didn't have a choice. <laughs> I was able to be much more of myself with him. Um, mm -hmm. I could never talk back to my mother, but I could definitely tell my husband. And he, he realized, you know, I'm a force when I, I need to be and I had to be in order to survive. But yes, I learned a lot through my own motherhood. And I also, and, and through your students too, because you talk about teaching and how much you love teaching and how this is really cool because the way God planned, God always does these funny things, you know, here you are, you become a teacher and you have all these students who love you and tell you how wonderful you are when your own mother wasn't telling you how wonderful you were, but the kids were like, wow, we love you. Isn't that kind of what happened to you? It's true. And because I am such a people pleaser, and I certainly was more of that when I started my career, it was the perfect storm. You know, here I am ready to do anything for my students. And they, of course, appreciated it because not all teachers do that. And the more I did, the more I wanted to do, the more feedback I got. So I found in that area of my life that that is where I, I felt that I was the most successful. But, you know, and it's interesting, all like I said, positive. I just, it seems like um, God puts us in certain positions uh, to help us without us even realizing it. And I just, I see that, you know, I'm like, wow, in retrospect, looking back, that was your, you know, that's how they pumped you up. And, and it changed you, I bet, as a person. It did. It gave me confidence in the one area of my life that I felt that I really was good enough. And that was in my career. And that eventually was able to spread out into other areas. But even That's when I went back to get my doctorate and, and my writing, I still didn't believe in myself. I didn't believe that I was a, a great writer. I was just average. And you are a good writer, by the way. I read your book. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Oh, well, and you know what? It's true. If your mom, your mom wasn't able to um, help you emotionally, so you you have really good friends you talk about in the book too, that you have really good girlfriends that you can talk to. And so that's kind of how you kept your sanity. I think maybe. Yes. I have. Yeah. I have wonderful women friends. I have a sister-in-law who's my best friend and we literally grew up together because she met my brother when I was 14 and got married when I um, turned, she was 19. I was 15 and um, she's been in the family and she's, I always say she's the only other person in my life who reminds me to take a sweater. And there's a lot to be said for that. You know, our mothers would say, you know, take a sweater, you're going to get cold or you're going to get sick. And I guess it's a metaphor for all the wonderful things she is in my life to protect me in so many ways. Well, and that's nice because, you know, a lot of people don't have a really great childhood and maybe they have a mother who is disconnected from them. And I think it's nice that you wrote this book because you tell people, hey, it's not your issue. She had issues. But when we grow up, I think this is the point I'm trying to make. When we grow up and we get older, we realize it's not their fault. They had their issues. We just have to work on ourselves and figure it out. And once we do, we really grow as people. You're so right. I, I often say, you know, the statue of limitations in blaming our parents runs out when we turn 18. I so, agree. <laughs> right. So we, we're not blaming our parents, but we have a unique set of circumstances because as my mother would say to me, and it's true, everyone walks with something. 
we all have challenges in our lives. Right. You know, nobody has the perfect life. And so it's just a way in which to find our journey and become whole. And that's really writing this book has helped me to, um, I took myself apart, examined the pieces and put myself back together, probably in a much more beautiful way than I originally was. Wow, what a wonderful way to say that. That's awesome. You're intuitive, too. When did you realize you were intuitive? I read something in the book, like when you went to college, you took some classes on ESP. Is that when you first, or did you know you were psychic before? Or I, I didn't know that I was, um, but I, I've always had this feeling, spiritual feeling of connection. Um, and my father, I mean, he shared some of that because I used to go to psychics and he was very interested in them too. My mother just thought I was crazy because mm -hmm. um, she didn't believe in anything. But I've always felt there has to be something more in life. And um, I feel that it was tragic, definitely tragic why Jeffrey died. But if he hadn't died, I wouldn't have had the space to grow and to do the things that I needed to do. And so I felt that, you know, this is my rightful place in the family that, you know, Jeffrey did what he needed to do in his very short life because I do believe in past lives. So maybe he died in order to push you towards your goals and for you to achieve your goals. That's a kind of a crazy way of thinking about it, but yeah, maybe. Well, I went to a psychic once and she says, I see you surrounded by a, a, a little boy, you know, your entire life. And it, you know, I started to think, my goodness. And when I wrote the book, there were times where I did not know what was going to come next. I was not the traditional author where I had a trajectory of whatever chapter was going to be. I literally would sit down at the computer and I'd just kind of pray for guidance in some way. And um, the words would unfold on the paper. That's how it's always been for me, too. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Isn't that crazy? And then you know how I know, I'm just going to say this, because when I was writing my first book, Wake Up, the Universe is Speaking to You, I would write and then I would think about it and I'd go back and I'd write the same thing again. Oh, and then I'd realize, yes. yeah, then I'd realize, oh my God, this is not coming from me. This is coming from somewhere else. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, and then when you were, you started the show and you read a passage, I was following it along in a, in a kind of out of body experience. Is that really, those are my words. They yeah. sound so different and beautiful when Nancy's reading them, but did I write that? Yes, I did. <laughs> yeah. Is it, and it, it, it is beautiful. There's a lot of really cool things in this book. Um, and I, I'm going to skip around a little bit if you don't mind. Sure. I'm going to skip around because I was telling you during the break, there's one part in here and I don't know if I can find it to read it, but um, where you talk about uh, your kids and you talk about um, reflections. Well, let's see. I'm looking up. I'm looking this up. You talk about maybe sometimes it's not such a good idea to open your mouth um, to your kids. You have three boys now. Is that correct? I have three sons, right? And two grandchildren. And two grandchildren. Well, here we go. I love this. Okay. She talks in the book, you guys, about not giving advice um, unless ask. And I chuckle because I have two daughters and three grandchildren. And she says this. I'm going to read this really quick. She says, I used to freely give advice, suggestions, mandates even. I often believe I knew what was the best for my loved ones, adult children, husbands, friends, and told them so. My comments began with, you should, you should stop worrying, stop smoking, try that plumber, cut your hair. Of course, um, 
the advice is different. If someone asks my thoughts about their hair, for example, then they want my opinion. But I didn't realize that I wasn't often asked. And since I stopped giving uninvited advice, I realized that few people actually ask for my opinion. And I do this too. I'm like, oh my God. And this comes from my mother. Barbara, this comes from my mom. I'm trying to tell my kids how to run their life. And I'm like, oh, and I even showed my husband. I'm like, we got to just shut up and, and let them do their thing. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about that, Barbara? It's true. Um, and, and I did the experiment getting because I, as you, my mother also would tell me what to do um, for my own good, as I said, or she, or she would often say, I know you better than you know yourself and et cetera. And so I realized we have adult children who make their own decisions and they need, they they have the responsibility to make these own decisions. And so I stopped giving advice and suddenly I was a lot quieter. People didn't, my, my sons didn't ask for my advice. If they did, I would say, do you really want my opinion? And then they would say yes, but it may, it's so much more comfortable because I'm not in charge of their lives. They are very worthy of, of making decisions for themselves and their families. And it's very freeing. Well, yeah, it really changed my mindset when I read it. I thought it was like an aha moment. I'm like, oh, I just need to shut up and let them <laughs> and let them live their <laughs> life and do their thing. And and you're exactly right. If they want my opinion, they will ask me. <laughs> right, because well, one thing my mother said, which was true, she didn't always follow up, but she says you can't put your head on their shoulders. But oh, I how love that. That was. <laughs> That's exactly true. Well, and um. You also talk about um, self-validation, and is it your writing that really brought you to the point where you could um, feel secure and validate? Is that what helped you? Did you journal, or, or what did you do in the beginning? Yeah, I, I, I have gone to therapy a lot, but I've also spent a lot of time writing, and I, take a, I, I write a, a daily journal, and um, I spend a lot of time um, writing instead of sharing those words out loud. And that has really, really helped me to go inward. Absolutely. I've taken writing classes, um, spiritual writing, things like that, that have really helped me. That's really cool. So, and, and I always tell people that, you know, and I try to do it every day. I, I'm not as good as I should be, but when you write down your thoughts and, and your goals too, I'm big on writing down what you're looking for or what, maybe writing it down before it's even happened to make, to kind of coerce it a little bit. I believe in that kind of stuff too. Are you into like affirmations and visualizations and stuff like that too? I'm into affirmations. I've done the visualizations as well um, with you know, poster boards of everything that I want. I'm looking at one right now, a small one, but I do affirmations, especially when I didn't believe in myself. When I didn't believe I was a strong enough writer, I would say, you're an amazing writer. Um, and, and I, all the things that I didn't feel good about is what I affirmed. And it, that has really helped. And it changed. Wow. Okay, guys, we're here today with Barbara Jaffe. And you've got to get her book. You can get it at Amazon.com. And it's called When Will I Be Good Enough? And thanks so much for joining us here today. We'll be right back here on High Road to Humanity. This is Nancy. You're out your host. We will be right back on High Road to Humanity. But make sure that you subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, iHeartRadio, or download directly from Nancy's website, nancyyearout.com, so you never miss an episode of The High Road.
My husband was laughing as he was reading about the differences between men and women. According to the article, men get single tusks or hiccups more often than women. Everyone knows that women are better at multitasking than men. I'm good at both multitasking and procrastinating, which means right now there are 28 things that I'm putting off until later. What's another word for a person who puts everything off until the last minute? A cunctator. Women blink nearly twice as much as men. And while men can read smaller print than women, women can hear better. In fact, when a woman says, what? She heard you. She's just giving you a chance to change what you said. It's marching day. I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words you never heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. We want to thank you so much for listening to High Road to Humanity. This is where Nancy and her guests tell stories that will guide you and enlighten your mind and soul. Now, welcome back to the High Road. Hey, welcome back. And this is Nancy Yerald. Hey, if you are interested in me coming to your venue to speak, you can go to my website. It's nancyyerout.com. That's N-A-N-C-Y-Y-E-A-R-O-U-T.com. And um, I also do personal coaching. If anybody's interested, you're welcome to sign up on my website. We are here today with Barbara Jaffe, and she's telling us some really good information. And one thing she says in her book, she says, the only, and this is so true, and that's why I'm going to repeat it. The only person you can change is yourself, only you, nobody else. So um, having said that, Barbara had an eating disorder because of the issues that she was subjected to, unfortunately, as a child. And um, I'm wondering if you just give us, expand on that a little bit, Barbara. Talk to us a little bit about how you overcame that, because people have this issue. Yes, um, I, I think for me, I have always had this issue and probably always will, but um, I'm aware of it and I'm doing the best I can with it. But um, for me, it was a control issue. It was one thing in my life that I could control. Losing pounds, I was pretty young when I was a little younger, um, became more, you know, a, a road where I lost many, many pounds and my period stopped for about a year and a half. And, you know, I had to go to the doctor. Um, there were no doctors that my family knew of that dealt with this. So my mother took me to uh, her gynecologist and the gynecologist said, you know, what you're doing is really killing your mother. <laughs> so that, that seriously, was, honestly, that was <laughs> along with the bowl of Oreo cookies and the glass of milk. Uh, force fed to me every night. <laughs> Consequently, I don't eat Oreo cookies. Why yeah. did she do that? Can I ask? Because I read that in your book, but maybe I missed it. Why did she give you Oreo cookies and milk every night? I, she wanted me to have calories and, and gain weight. And So I, she forced you to eat the Oreo cookies. That was it. Right. right. And there was a part of me that wanted to please, the part of me that wanted to lose weight, and then the part of me that wanted to please my mother. So eventually I... I stopped my eating disorder in terms of starvation, and then I went the other way, as often what happens, you know, where I gained weight and I became chubby. But um, whenever there were periods of time in my life that I was depressed or sad or there was losses or my mother and I 
got into a, you know, interaction, I would stop eating. And that has always been the way in which I deal with stress is to stop eating. So I, um, even to the, towards the end of my mother's life, whenever she would see me, she, she would say, you're too thin, you're not eating enough, which in some secret way was a validation for me, even as an older woman. That's huh. why I say I always have these issues. Well, looking at you today, you look great. You don't look too thin. You don't look too heavy. You, uh, we're on Skype, so I can see Barbara, and she looks pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> it's so nice to see that you made it through all of this, and you've come out to be such, wow, and you went back to school, and you got your doctorate. Can you talk about that a little bit? Because I was really impressed with that, Barbara. Yeah, I did. I, I decided, and there was no reason in terms of my career for me to go back. It wasn't going to do anything more for me at that point, but I needed to do it for myself. I needed to prove to myself that this was the final mountain that I could climb. Um, financially, it wasn't a great decision. We had our boys all in college. The youngest one was going off to college. That would mean four people in college. Um, and my husband said, I support you, but why don't you wait until the youngest one is out of college? And I thought I'd have no brain cells by then. <laughs> so I actually went back. I applied and I got in. Um, I graduated um, from with my doctorate from UCLA when my youngest one graduated high school. And it was really um, amazing. And it it really helped me to complete the circle of lacking the confidence that I needed. When I, uh, that I had, when I started my program, one of the professors wanted to know if they could use my paper. Their students and I was incredulous. I thought, well, maybe there is some that validity to the fact that I, I write well, if she wants to, I mean, I still didn't believe it even then. And that was, um, in, I graduated in 2004, so that wasn't that long, you know, 15 years ago, I was still on this journey. But I think for my, for me, my book is uh, really representative of the fact that no matter what we experience in life, we can become whole and we can have beautiful lives. And one doesn't have to be a replacement child to feel less than. Um, in my era, in my life, it was a feeling lack of confidence, lack of lack of self-esteem, lack of self-worth, and these were the areas that um, I've been working on tirelessly in my life. And I think that you know some people grow up in homes where maybe they're blended homes or step homes or um, uh, siblings are compared. All of these issues that I've experienced and come through in various ways like that, or where there's siblings with an ill child, and um, unfortunately, that's what happens. The child who's ill gets more of the attention. Yeah, that's true. Well, and I think your book has helped a lot of people. Um, I know you've been out there. And then do your students come to you? Do they know about your book? Have they read it? So I retired um, from my full-time teaching position at the community college um, the year that my book came out. But um, so at the end of my um, tenure there, I did share it with my students because I didn't want any feeling that they felt they needed to buy the book or whatever. Right. Um, so when I was ready to leave, I had some students who actually read it. And one student came to me and said, I am so shocked. She goes, I'm a replacement child, but never thought about it. And she could really connect of that right. feeling of being less than, but not being able to articulate it. So I've had a lot of, a lot of students that have connected with that. Well, that, and they can see your achievements that, hey, it didn't hold you yeah, back. Exactly. You, 
you worked on yourself. And there's a lot of people out there who's gone through similar situations, but they choose not to work on themselves. But but you did. You wanted to get past this. You knew intuitively there was something that wasn't right, and you were going to correct it. Is that pretty much yes. what? It, and it really is the choice, exactly. Exactly what you said. Um, I have always chosen maybe in one way the harder road because I've worked tirelessly. Sometimes I think, oh, I could just relax and do nothing, but that's not who I am. And yes, I've worked really hard in putting myself back together and making myself whole. You know, the idea of the unexamined life isn't worth living. Um, and I've spent my life examining myself and trying to make myself the best person I can be. And there are people who've had far harder lives than I. I totally acknowledge that. But we can all live amazing lives. That's what I love about your book, because we all go through stuff. We're all here to learn. We come down here and we're all put in different positions. And it's how we handle the situation. And do we choose to blame somebody else or do we choose to go inside and say, okay, how can I make myself whole? And I think that's where a lot of people are at when they get to in their 40s and their 50s. Don't you think? Absolutely. They start to think. And, and that's yeah. the beauty of aging for me, too. I have the luxury of really being more introspective and saying, you know, now's the time. What am I waiting for? Right, exactly. Do you have another book that you're going to put together? Um, there. It took me a long time to get within me there was also the point that I was ready to explode but I needed to spend time to figure it out so in answer to your question yes I'd love to write another book I'm not quite sure what it is I gravitate toward nonfiction, so we'll see we'll see what happens that is awesome <laughs> now what are your children how are you have three sons and how do they feel about this and and how, they, they had a really good uh, relationship with your mother didn't they Yes, my what my mother couldn't always give to me, she was so generously um, loving toward my sons. And I so I'm so grateful for that. They have great memories of her and she just had infinite patience with them and loved them unconditionally. So it was a whole different dynamic. It really was. And I have a lot of gratitude for her for that. That's great. That's awesome. So, And that's nice that you don't hold any ill will against your mom. And, and some people would think, oh, well, you should, but you, you can't, not if you're a good, forgiving whole person. I mean, that just comes with part of the growth, right? Exactly. And plus, as I said, she did the best she could with the tools that she had, you know, and that was a time was just very limited. And, and there's other things in today's world she could have done that would have really helped her to become whole. Because not all children who are born to replace another child would have these experiences. A lot has to do with communication. We weren't allowed to talk to Jeff about Jeffrey. We weren't allowed to talk about that period of time. And that communication really does help. So let me understand this, and I hate to go backwards, but so there were pictures of Jeffrey in the house, but nobody was able to talk about him or what had happened. Not, you didn't go to his gravesite, or you didn't celebrate his birthday or his death or any of that? No, I mean, we would go to, occasionally to his grave only because it was near my grandmother's. And so when we'd go, my mother would say, there's Jeffrey's. But um, it was not until my mom was almost a couple years before she died, she says, I don't know what, when I die, nobody's going to think about Jeffrey, about when he lived and when he died. And I said, I'd be happy to, but I need to know those dates. 
It was mm -hmm. just very quiet, secretive. Nobody talked about it. My old, my brother, Stephen, says he doesn't even remember Jeffrey. And he was about five when he died. And he doesn't remember him at all. No. That's crazy. Yeah. Well, and do you think just because she kept him, what, isolated? Or how could he not remember him? I mean, that's... It, because nobody talked about it after it was nobody over. talked about it. And it was probably a very traumatic time. I would assume that, you know, he was probably uh -huh. staying at our grandparents' house or something during the time of the funeral and the illness and probably put it out of his mind, I would think. In terms what about your dad? How was your dad through this whole thing? My dad was very different. He wanted to talk about Jeffrey. He would show us movies that he took of Jeffrey Um so, but he didn't want to upset my mother. And that was always the dynamic. You know, she, my mother was very upset. Don't, don't rock the boat walking on eggshells. Let's just take, you know, make sure everything's okay. And, and he was very much, um, her protector. And she would lock herself in her room. We didn't talk too much about that, but she'd lock herself in a room. And for how long a period of time would she do that, Barbara? Yeah. I'm well locking. No, but Closing the door. Oh, yeah. closing the door. And, okay. And then a lot of times the door wasn't closed, but she'd be she'd be in bed every day for part of the day at least. Yes. But she'd get up and get you ready for school, and then go back to bed, and you'd find she, her there yeah. when you come home. My dad or what? Get ready for school, but um, my mom was always there. My mom was there when I came back, so she was a, a, a sense of stability, definitely, because I knew that she was there. Um, she kind of didn't have a lot of energy, but was, was home a lot. So there was some comfort in knowing that she was home, right. but um, she was also in bed a lot. Was she, did she hug you? Was she a huggy kind of mom? Um, I would hug her, which was very interesting. She didn't necessarily go out of her way to hug me, but when I hugged, um, she would. And then sometimes she'd say, okay, that that's enough now. <laughs> So it's almost like when Jeffrey died, she closed her heart up and, and, I, and she wouldn't open it back up for you or I anybody so. else. I, that was just, oh, I can't even imagine how horrendous that was. But my grandmother, her mother, um, helped out a lot, too, and was over the house a lot. And I was very close to my grandmother. She was there also when I came home from school and she would, you know, help me, give me snacks and took over a lot. That's wonderful that you had her there for you. Hey, um, we are here today, if you just tuned in, talking to Barbara Jaffe, and she's written a wonderful book, and it's called When Will I Be Good Enough? And it's a replacement child's journey to healing, and it's really fantastic. And you can pick it up at Amazon.com, or you can visit her website. It's Barbara and Jaffe, is that right? BarbaraAndJaffe.com. Dot com. All right. High Road and more. Don't forget to visit Nancy's website, nancyyearout.com, to sign up for her intuitive personal coaching program or to book a psychic reading. If you're ready for a big change in your work, your career, your happiness, your life, it's time for the Million Dollar Mindset with Marla Tabaka. Monday afternoons at 2, 1 Central on Toginhead.com. Marla believes that with the right mindset, anything is possible. Join us as successful life coach Marla Tabaka inspires you and her clients to explore. 
discover, and live your dreams by developing what she calls the million-dollar mindset. Marla will inspire you to take action on your dreams and reveal secrets to success that will help you realize your own unique power. Tune into the million-dollar mindset for heartwarming stories with Marla Tabaka. Learn tips and tricks to building a successful business and unlock the secrets to creating a happier, more balanced life through abundant thinking and attraction power. For more information on the million-dollar mindset, go to our website, MarlaTabaka.com. That's M-A-R-L-A-T-A-B-A-K-A.com. It's the Million Dollar Mindset with Marla Tabaka. Monday afternoons at 2, 1 p.m. Central on Toginet.com. official 4th of July party was held at the White House in 1801. But did you know that countries other than the U.S. celebrate American Independence Day or July 4th? Denmark, Italy, Portugal, and England all have 4th of July parties. In fact, the British celebrate their independence with bungers and fizz gigs, otherwise known as firecrackers, just like in America. Squib is slang for an electric match used in pyrotechnics. Our dog celebrates July 4th every year the same way, by cowering under the bed. Many European celebrations take place, of course, at American military bases. I'd like to send a special thanks to all our armed forces stationed around the world for everything you do to provide freedom and independence to America. It's I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words-you-never-heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. We want to thank you so much for listening to High Road to Humanity. This is where Nancy and her guests tell stories that will guide you and enlighten your mind and soul. Now, welcome back to the High Road. Hey, welcome back. And we're here with Barbara Jaffe. Hey, Barbara, I wanted to talk a little bit about expectations and planned disappointments because it really hit home for me in your book. Can you talk about that a little bit about us expecting things and then being disappointed? Because I'm one of those, you know. I think so many of us are, but I've come to learn that expectations are planned disappointments. When we have expectations of other people or other situations, how we expect it to turn out, invariably they don't, and so we are disappointed. So I have learned over the years not to have those expectations. I can have expectations of myself because, as you said, we're the only ones that we can control. But in terms of an example would be, If I were upset with something, I expected that my husband would open up my brain and figure out exactly what was the matter. So if he said, what's the matter? And I said, nothing. Of course, there was something, but I expected him to know what that was. Why would I? We're not the same people. How could he know what's inside my brain? So when I I learned to tell people what I need and what I want, because how could I expect them to No otherwise? And that has really transformed me in so many ways and made me a much happier person. Well, and that's like finding your voice because it, when you're telling me this, it, I can hear you say, I found my voice. I don't expect people. I say what I want or I say what I feel or I say what I think. You use your voice. Right. And if I, you know, expect that one of my kids are going to do something or if I want to hear from them and expect they're going to call me, why would I expect that? They have their own lives. If I want to speak to them, I'll call them, you know, and they'll call me when they have time. And it's those kinds of little things, these little tweaks that have really been transformational. 
Thank you for that, because I'm one of those that'll be like, well, my daughter hasn't called me. I wonder why. But you're exactly right. They have my kids are in their 30s. They have their own lives. They have their own kids. And it's almost like the needy mother that wants to, you know, control and make sure because that's the kind of mom I had. She was kind of controlling, too. And I see that when you when you talk about that, it hit it hits home with me because I do that myself. And I think, wow, that's really awesome advice. And until somebody brings it out into the open and makes you aware, you don't even think about these things. Right. Just little things, but they, they are transformational. Another thing you said in at the end of your book that I thought was just fabulous, you said you have a chapter, you have a little heading and it says 20 years from now, what will it matter? <laughs> and and you use the analogy um, that you were, well, you tell us, tell us your child was playing and you were doing the dishes. What happened? Tell us that little analogy you used in the book. It, it's just a, a way to help me prioritize um, elements of my life. So my son loved to play games, my youngest son, Brian. And and I, you know, thinking about the dishwasher that I had to empty and thinking about the dinner I had to make and his desire for me to play a game, knowing that very soon he wouldn't be asking me anymore. He'd be on his phone. He'd be... Okay, 20 years from now, what's going to matter? The mission, the dinner, or having those memories of playing games? And it really, really kept me focused on the important things in life. And that has carried me through in many elements, whether it's work, or my career, my family. 20 years from now, I ask myself. Yeah, 20 years from now, will it be more important that I played the game with him? Because that's what you'll remember, not doing the darn dishes. I mean, <laughs> that's true. Um you also talk at the end of the book, um, you say gently taking what is ours without waiting to be offered or given. Can you tell the audience what you're, what you meant by that or what you're. Yeah. I mean, a lot of times in my life, I would wait for things to happen to me, or I wait for someone to do something for me that I, I will Again, that idea of expectation, this is what I want for my husband to give it to me or someone at work to give it to me. And then I realized if I really want something, I need to ask for it. And there's nothing wrong with asking for what we want, whether it's um, a new class to teach or um, a different vacation to go on or um, even where to go for dinner. You know, why should... I wait for it to come to me. There's nothing wrong with asking. And that that's always been a hard thing for me to do. And I still need to work on it, asking for what I want. Some people, are. Just, it's very easy for them to say, this is what I want and this is what I need. It wasn't the case for me. You were more of a people pleaser because that's what you became. And so you did everything for everybody else until you finally realized you weren't doing for yourself. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And we have to do for ourselves. And I, a lot of moms are like that, uh, myself included, you know, oh, I've got to do this and this for these people. And then we forget about ourselves. And then that analogy of the the air mask when you're on the airplane, they always tell you, okay, put that on first. And then you realize, oh, if I don't take care of me, then I can't take care of anybody else. And and that's always sticks in my head when I, when I see myself doing that. Do you do that too, Barbara? I do that too, and a similar analogy is the burnt toast syndrome. Are you familiar with that burnt toast syndrome? I am, so, but go ahead and tell our yeah, audience. Yeah, like when you're making toast, invariably there's one toast 
piece that burns. And, you know, I would always take that burnt toast and make fresh toast for everybody. And then I thought, why am I having the burnt toast? Why does anybody have to eat the burnt toast? You know, I could make <laughs> croutons out of it so I don't waste it. But nobody eats, needs to. I don't need the leftovers because that's really a metaphor for how I saw myself. And when did you like realize that? Like, when was your aha moment? Did you, you know, where you went, wait a minute, why am I doing this? I think the aha moment came with the granola bar example that um, when I tell that story, tell that story. We were all at the airport going up um, for my San Francisco for my niece's wedding. And, and the, you know, the, the guys were all older and um, I always bring food for myself, like a granola bar or some kind of protein bar. And, um, you know, as a younger mom, we'd have a diaper bag filled with everything. And that transferred over to a purse filled with everything. But over the years, the boys are on their own. I don't have a purse filled with everything just for myself. And um, one of my sons asked for a granola bar. He probably doesn't even remember it. But for me, it was transformational. And I said, that one's for me, but I'll be happy to buy you one if you'd like one. And there it was. So for the first time in your life, you didn't give away your last granola bar to one of your kids. You actually thought about yourself first. And I didn't feel selfish about it. It was called self-care, big difference. That was interesting to read that in your book, because I think a lot of us have done that with our kids. And even here they are, grown adults, and you're still doing the same thing. It's almost like a pattern we can't get out of, right? Yes, yes. Now, I want to ask you something. Do you find, because I find this too, now that I'm older and my kids are older and I'm doing my own thing, and there are times where they do call and I just don't have time for them because I'm very busy now. <laughs> do you have that? <laughs> have you become that way as well? It's true. Um, we live full, rich lives, and so we're very busy, um, which I think is so important, focusing on ourselves and not waiting for somebody else to fill that time for us. Well, yeah, and it's not a, um, it's not oh me 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 like in a weird way or you know in in a in an ego way. It's hey, I've got to take care of some of my own needs, and and it's interesting because when you are a mom and you're a parent or you're a dad, you know, let's bring the dads in too, and you do these things for your kids, it's almost like a, a habit, and it's hard to get out of that habit and break it when the kids leave the nest, and and then it's just you, and you have to kind of like re you know, reshuffle and go, okay, um, I got to change the way I do things now because it's about me now and the kids are gone. It's so true. It's all part of that journey and about the expectations and just keeping the focus on ourselves and what we can do and, and not now expect you've... people to do that for us. Well, yeah. And do you have a grand, you have a grandson now too. I have a grandson and a granddaughter. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. See, now, let me ask you, Barbara, how, now, are you a completely, you're completely different with your grandkids, aren't you, than you were as a parent? Because I know I am. <laughs> I, I have the, you're right. I have the same unconditional love that I had for my kids, but I don't have to have the responsibility of raising them. Right. And so it's 100% pure enjoyment, even just sitting there watching them play. Because as a parent who had time to watch their kids play when you had you know, a house to run, a job to do. So, and it's, it's a true gift. Yeah, well, and, and I say that because my kids will say to me now, gosh, mom, you didn't act like that or you didn't parent <laughs> that way. Why are you that way to our great, our kids? Because you weren't that way to us. And I'm like, because they're, they're yours, not mine. And I get the good times and you can, you know, discipline. And it is a completely different thing. It is. Barbara, 
You know, you wrote this book, and I wonder if we've got about three minutes left on the show, and I just wonder, what advice would you give somebody who's just starting, maybe they'll listen to the show today for the first time and realized um, this kind of stuff. What would you advise them to do, other than to read your book, of course? (laughs) I think to be gentle with themselves, to know that they're on a journey that they need to be, and to find out as much about themselves introspectively to make that journey a beautiful one. Whatever hardships they've experienced in their lives or at any time, they can have exactly what they want in terms of a fulfilling, enriched life. Um, We just have to do the work and all that happens is just one day at a time. You know, and you don't talk a lot about prayer. Did you pray a lot during this time? I believe in a higher power, so I definitely am introspective and would would turn things over, um, and and that's the way that I used to um, work things through. Yes. Okay. Do you meditate or anything like that? Um, not regularly. Um, my meditation often is is with a pen or just writing. Um, I did go through a period of time of meditating, but sometimes it's hard for me to turn my motor down enough to be able to do that. <laughs> I'm still working. I know. no and I agree with that but I love that you journal and so you recommend that people journal do you journal in the morning in the evening what do you think works best for me it works best in the morning when my mind is fresh and not cluttered with many different other words and activities during the day so kind of you know after my cup of coffee or during my first cup of coffee is when I I spend some time writing Now, tell me this really quick. So if you have somebody who's on the other end of the spectrum and they have a child that passes and they have a new child come in, what would you say to them? Um, Just to be able to communicate when the child, um, the new child is old enough to understand that they're very special in their own way. And very sadly that they did have a sibling who passed and to honor that sibling by, as you said, thinking about their birthdays and when they passed, but but how joyful it is to have this new child and how they're very unique in their own ways. Thank you, Barbara. Um, thank you for sharing your story with us. I really appreciate having you on today. Thank hey guys. you for, being, for allowing me to be on your show. Oh, you're so welcome. It was a pleasure. And next week, guys, we have Ann Tucker, and she's got this book. It's called Undoubtedly Awesome, Your Own Personal Roadmap from Delt to Flow. So that's next week. Just join us. And Barbara, thanks again. You can find her book again. Hey, you guys, join me next week on The High Road for more stories filled with wisdom, love, and hope for our future. Have a fabulous week and know when you stay on The High Road, you make it to your destination. Visit my website at nancyyearalt.com where you can sign up for my intuitive life coaching or a psychic reading. If you have any questions, please email me at nancyyearalt at gmail.com. That's N-A-N-C-Y-Y-E-A-R-O-U-T at gmail.com. This is Nancy Yearout lighting the way to your high road to success. Right now, I'm switching to a new lane. Foot to the floor, man, searching for the real thing. Somebody else sometimes ain't no shame. Head to the cloud.